In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is great to see 29% uh, of your faces this morning, and uh, to still have those on Zoom with us. What a great day. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted, adore, worship the one, and despise the other. You cannot adore, worship God and wealth, God and mammon. Last week, Ben preached that the gospel isn't some abstract, spiritual, internal matter, but rather the gospel is a social, embodied justice. It's a real-world difference in how we live and move and have our being. And today we're going to continue because we're talking about on the, what, what does the gospel come to solve? Sin. And what is sin? I think that most of us get that sin is personal. Right? That it's something I do that's inside of me that does bad things to people I love. That's how we've been taught about it, most of us. And to be honest, most of us have enough personal and individual sin to constantly be reminded of that. Amen? But sin, this evil and decay and death that holds our world in bondage under its power, doesn't just exist in individuals. It's bigger than any one of us. Scripture uh, teaches us that it exists in supra-personal entities. So Ephesians 6, which is what Alyssa read for us today, Paul calls them rulers, authorities, principalities, and powers, cosmic powers. Paul says the real enemy isn't in, like, you know, Kurt and Jean. The real enemy exists beyond people. One of the ways that principalities and powers manifest the evil and sin of our world is in systems and structures in our world. A reading from Exodus this morning was about Israel's slavery in Egypt. Remember, slavery in Exodus, all through the Torah, wasn't sin per se. <laughs> it's not against God's law. Actually, God's law talks about how to have slaves. At this point, so we can't say the problem with slavery was the sin of slavery. Because that goes against the logic of the book of Exodus. Rather, in Egypt, you see 400 years of people living inside of a structure, a system that dehumanized and degraded. It was a way of organizing bodies and economics and property and work that destroyed God's good creation. We could talk about the book of Revelation. It's all about... Babylon, which is a symbol of how evil operates in worldly structures. And God brings judgment against that system and structure. But today, we could talk about all that. We're not. Today, we're going to talk about <laughs> the only rival God Jesus mentions in the Gospels. Man. Jesus talks about this more than anything else in the scriptures besides the kingdom of God. 
mammon. No one can serve, worship, adore. This is cult religious language. Two masters, Jesus said. Today we proclaim the good news that Jesus' kingdom reorders our material reality. People, work, family, economy, our entire sociopolitical order is now shaped by Jesus. Not men. Church, let us name the sinful structures and unjust systems that order and arrange our material world that oppose God's kingdom. Let us name and renounce them today in the name of Jesus. Okay, Jesus talks about money more than anything else. Mammon, and mammon is wealth, property, income, land, job, family. It's like this, it's everything that you have that operates in the economy you're a part of. So first, I want to talk about the material conditions who heard Jesus' teaching on mammon. What, what was their life like? Were they good middle-class white people like you and me? Who were they? How did they hear this about mammon? Two, I want to name quickly how that economic context of Jesus' listeners, how it shapes how we hear some of the things he talks about. Maybe they heard those things differently than we would have because they were starving. Three, I want to point out how mammon still shapes our sociopolitical world today. And four, I want to connect mammon to racism because we're talking about racial justice. All right, all in 15 minutes, no problem. Here we go. First, the situation in Jesus' day. The very rich in Israel was a tiny upper class, no more than 5%. And the rest of the people of Israel were poor, many to the point of destitution. Rabbinic writings tell us, and of this time, of bands of homeless poor roaming the countryside so desperate that when the poor tithe was distributed from the temple, sometimes they stampeded like cattle. Most of the poor, however, were working poor peasants engaged in substance farming, which means that after they paid Roman taxes, temple taxes, uh, Herod taxes, there was barely enough to survive and certainly not enough for a 401k. Most peasants had like one and a half acres to cultivate, which is hardly enough to support a family. That is, if they were fortunate enough to have saved their farms from outright seizure by the Romans or from dispossession by tax default or from the machinations of the Herodians and their cronies, who it's estimated Herodians owned a half to two-thirds of all the land in Galilee. To make ends meet, many farmers either had to hire themselves out for wages to supplement their meager crops or to go into debt, which was usually the worst alternative. Tenant farmers and sharecroppers often fared even worse, ending up in prison, debtor's prison. That's the most of the prisoners in Jesus' day were political revolutionaries and people in debt because they would default on their debts and be enslaved by their creditors. I got more to say here, but to cut it short, this is how bad debt slavery was in Jesus' day that one of the, the first act that the revolutionaries in the 60s, when the Jews rose up against the Romans, and then AD 70, we know the temple fell. If you've been in Sunday school a couple of days or two, you know about that. The first thing the revolutionaries did, broke into the temple and burned the debt records. 
the temple was, we'll say more about the temple in a bit, but it was, it was the bank. That's how, that's how important this was to these people. Mammon had created hell on earth, living for people, for the 95% living under the crushing imperialistic machinations of Rome and Roman puppets in Israel. It wasn't that the 95% loved money in their hearts and they had to get, get rid of that love. It was that the biggest problem they faced was that mammon was a cruel master. It destroyed them. It starved them. It disenfranchised them. And they were being killed by it. The good news of Jesus' kingdom is that it reorders our material world. People, work, family, economy, our entire socio-political order. It's now shaped by Jesus. And Jesus, in his kingdom, confronts the order of mammon. That arranges our material world to destroy us. Let us name and renounce the unjust systems and structures today in our world in the name of Jesus. So, like I said, mammon then isn't just an interior temptation of the heart, it's not just about desire. Mammon is manifest, it's material, it orders things, it actually kills people, makes them hungry. <laughs> right? This connects to our fall series that we did about the politics of Jesus and a partisan America. Remember, we said the politics of Jesus is about a socio-political order that's different, sometimes the different logic. This is how Jesus fought against mammon. So then, I could, oh, gosh, if we wanted them Bible churches that had 74-minute sermons, we could just really have fun right now. But, but we're not. So let me just give you three, let me give you like really three, thinking about that, thinking about the way Israel was. Let me just give you three passages from Scripture that we all know. And how would we hear those differently? If Mammon really was a brutal master, Jesus' first public words in Luke's gospel, he stands up in the synagogue in his hometown. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. How does that sound different to you now? We spiritualize all that. Oh, yeah, I'm oppressed by my uh, own personal private sins. And um, yeah, I'm blind to seeing God's truth in the world. The poor were a class of people. The, the poor, the Havarim were a class of people. Releasing the captives. Who was in prison? People in debt. Releasing the people from debt. Liberation of the oppressed. Literal oppressed. The year of the Lord's favor is an allusion to the Jubilee. Every seventh seven, every fiftieth every year, every piece of land that had been taken from the original owner was given back. It was a ali ali oxen free out of debt. It was a it was a restart, a reset button. Jesus stands up and tells all these people in Galilee, two thirds of whom don't own their land anymore, that I'm hitting the reset button. This obviously wasn't spiritual metaphor, right? He was serious because his kingdom is a socio political economic order. All right, Lord's prayer. Again, we spiritualize it, but, but let's hear it in Jesus' context. Our Father, the one in the heavens, manifest your holiness. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done. Here, give us daily bread, forgive us our debts. Give us our daily bread because we're starving. We're really hungry. Forgive us our debts. We like to translate that trespass or sins, but the word is debt, and it refers to economic debt and relational debt. It's a word that means both. So Jesus, Jesus is teaching people in debt to pray, release us from this. Oppressive master, and may we treat each other the way you treat us. May we not, may we not put people in debt. See how material and real that is rather than as well as forgive me my sin the lord's prayer was about dethroning mammon as ensconced in the empire your kingdom come your will be done there's already a kingdom at work should i keep going you cannot serve two masters religious cultic term mammon makes a claim on our lives you've heard denarius is a day's wage it's a day's wage like a minimum wage is a livable wage what do we know about minimum wage? You can't live on it. Denarius was a day's wage, but it was like $7.25 an hour when you have two kids. We don't have time for this, but it changes that, that vineyard guy who has goes to the market and sees some people and hires them to work and goes back later and sees people. And then at the end of the day, hires people. And then he pays them each a denarius. And the last should be first, the first should be last. Think about hearing that as the person who worked all day for 12 hours times minimum wage and the person who worked one hour for that same amount. It changes the way we hear that parable. It, it goes from being like, oh, you're so generous to you son of a jerk. You're messing with us. Finally, cleansing of the temple. You've, you've heard this is when Jesus gets, you know, really gets his those all dukes of hazard on them, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Well, Jesus, we're told in all the Gospels that he really deals with the people who are selling doves, overturns money changers tables, and he, he, he focuses on the people who are selling doves. Doves were sold to poor people because they couldn't afford the other sacrifices in the temple. Jesus' disruption of the temple market wasn't about people selling things in the house of worship. It was an act of resistance against a corrupt and exploitative system that was being predatory on the poor. He calls it a den of thieves. A den is a safe place that people who are criminals go because they're safe there. This is where criminals are safe. Today, the good news of Jesus' kingdom is that it reorders material reality. It's actually good news for Everything that's happening, economy, family, work, our entire sociopolitical order is shaped by Jesus. Churches name the sinful structures and unjust systems that order our world today. Let us name and renounce them in the name of Jesus. So, to close, how does mammon shape our world today? Is it still around? Is mammon still a god? Well, we... Well, there's so many things we can say here. We think we can use money. We think it's a spiritually neutral entity. And as long as I don't want it too much, I can just spend it however I want. 
But we see from Scripture that we don't use money. Money uses us. I, mean, I know that's a hard teaching to say in a room full of middle-class people. Money uses us. It doesn't just exist in our hearts, but it actually orders our world. Just think about the idea of jubilee. If we were to practice that today, and maybe not even like land, maybe we don't even get off the Kickapoo uh, Miami land that we're on and give it back to them. Maybe we just say that everybody's debt is erased. Just imagine a politician saying all student debt should be erased. Do you think it would go over well? We lose our minds at the, even the idea of Jubilee. Even a, even a tiny fraction of Jubilee, that's how you know Mammon reigns. Do you know scripture talks about going into debt as sin? Usury is the old King James word for it. Getting loan money or property at a, at a fairly high rate of interest. Just think about that. Think about if Christians stop taking on debt. I know this is beginning to sound like Dave Ramsey, but I'm just saying, usury as sin, it's crazy in our world today. It's crazy. Of course you have to have a mortgage. Ah, so much to say about this. We valorize wealth and stigmatize poverty. If you're wealthy, you're virtuous. If you're poor, it's probably because you're morally deficient. Let me show you what I mean. Jeff Bezos will make 320 one million dollars today today that's 13.4 million dollars an hour three thousand seven hundred and fifteen dollars a second and we've convinced ourselves listen church that it's worse to raise the minimum wage to twenty dollars an hour than it is to make 13.4 million dollars an hour Listen, just think about that. How dare you want to raise the minimum wage? How dare you want to change what a denarius is worth? Not, how dare you make $13.4 million an hour? And when we say we're going to raise the minimum wage, you threaten to raise our prices as though the consumer has to take on the fact that you make less money an hour. Think about how crazy that is. Unjust, that is, but just obvious. You don't even question it. And if you question that, you're some leftist anarchist, right? Just to, to question how the free market works makes you this, you might as well be a communist. We protect mammon with boogeymen. We acclaim and hail the rich. Melda Marcos, the First Lady of the Philippines had once reportedly had 3,000 shoes. My friend Philip Hollis talks about this in his book. 3,000 shoes. We're like, oh, that's, that's crazy. That's crazy. But you turn on AMC show hoarders, they ain't showing Imelda Marcos in her shoes. Hoarders are the people that collect trash, not the people who collect money. Jesus, though, talks about people who hoard money, not who collect trash. There are dozens more examples I can use, but do you see how mammon is still powerful in our word today? I'll close with this. I'm going to send out a link in the pastoral 
email this week that's going to give you three videos to watch. One is four minutes long. One is um, 17 minutes long, and one is over 30. So watch as many as you can. Start with the four minute one. And they all talk about how mammon became racialized in America. How wealth became racialized in America. How whiteness, this idea that I'm white, was invented to justify taking people's land, use their bodies, and eradicate them from the, from the, from the land. If we can't enslave them, we'll kill them. Listen to uh, the journal entry. I know I got to wrap up. Listen, you try preaching a, a two hour sermon in 20 minutes. Listen to the journal entry by Christopher Columbus when he first saw the people in the new world. They, the indigenous people, brought us parrots and balls of cotton and spears and many other things which they exchanged for the glass beads and hawk spells. They willingly traded everything they owned. <clears throat> Notice the economy. They were well built with good bodies and handsome features. They do not bear arms and do not know them, for I showed them a sword and they took it by the edge and cut, and cut themselves out of ignorance. They have no iron. Their spears are made of cane. They would make fine slaves. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. The white mentality. Remember, we talked about whiteness as a way of seeing and being in the world. Michael did in that workshop. When the, when the European person beheld an indigenous person or an African person, what they saw was profit. Profit. I can, you don't even know what a sword is. I can totally dominate and exploit you and take what you have. And that mentality, that way of being and seeing in the world still exists. It still exists. It's why someone making $13.4 million an hour doesn't bother us as much as somebody who wants to make $15 more. It still exists. But <laughs> the good news is that our gospel isn't a private, abstract, spiritual, eternal thing. That Jesus' kingdom actually matters materially. Jesus teaches on family, economics, work, time, money. Because his, the, way he, the, way he, uh, the way he orders reality overturns the tables of injustice. Dethrones mammon as a God. Church, let us identify and name unjust systems and structures in our world today. Church, let us renounce them in the name of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.